Hey everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to that Trippy show. Uh, Joe Biden made his first address uh, to Congress this week. There's once again questions about the future of the Republican Party, and the census results are in. So lots to talk about. Alex, what's up? So I, I think we should start at the State of the Union, uh, given that when we're recording this, it'll be pretty fresh. Lasting image of the night was probably seeing Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi behind Biden or kind of alone. Did you say lasting or last? <laughs> lasting. Okay, was, yeah, because it was the first thing I noticed. Yeah. Okay, go, go ahead. But there's, I think the symbolism there of them being, it's like the first thing everyone saw, two women for the first time in history. Uh, but his speech itself was pretty far-reaching, everything from economic recovery to his legislative priorities, and a lot more focus on China that I think most people thought uh, you didn't. But uh, Joe, what stood out to you? Well, th th that I think was the, I mean, the, the thing about, uh, you know, battling autocracy uh, and competing with China, I, I think is really fundamental for people to understand. I wish he had actually, uh, look, I thought the speech was great. Uh, very, you know, ambitious, uh, laid out a massive policy platform uh, and, you know, and really stressed the big accomplishments, 200 million shots in the arms in the first 100 days. You know, the, con the economy moving now, uh, GDP just showed up uh, this quarter, 6% growth. Yeah, huge growth. Um, yeah, so the, all that, I mean, uh, um, which is really a problem for Republicans. They couldn't figure out but not to stand up for it. Well, they didn't stand up hardly at all uh, and applaud. But I mean, when you can't, when only a few of them are applauding uh, some of these big things that actually got done that, that people out there are getting. I mean, they understand that uh, just, the, just the contrast between Biden and Trump alone, you know, is showing up in approval uh, ratings. But the thing I thought um, that I wish he'd explained more to the American people uh, was what he meant when he said that China and Xi think that democracy takes too long to find consensus, that, that autocrats, uh, dictators can move more quickly and therefore democracy can't compete. And, you know, I often, I think I've on the show in the past, I've talked about, look, if, if China wants to buy every iron ore mine in Africa, um, they just do it. They don't have they they could, they could order their companies to do it, but they just do it. There's nobody to to argue with them about why they're spending their money that way. And the important thing there to understand, whether we like it or not, anybody who owns all the iron ore uh, as a raw material in the world also determines which fat which country's factories make steel. So it's a kind of that's that's an important kind of strategic thing. Uh, in a democracy, if if Donald Trump had, had ordered the U.S. government to start buying every iron ore mine in Africa, or Biden, or Obama, George W. Bush, any of them, people would have gone crazy. The other party, no matter which president did it, the other party would be screaming, why are you creating mining jobs in Africa and not here, despite that we don't have a whole lot of iron ore mines here? Uh, uh I don't know if we have any, but uh, environmentalists, Joe Trippi be with, might be with environmentalists screaming about, you know, how, how could, why are we doing this? Why are we, you know, more mining? Um, and to build the consensus to actually go out strategically to make sure 
our factories and our workers uh, and, and our need for steel, and I mean, I'm just using this one example, um, China can go corner the market on it. We've got a, you know, U.S. Steel would have to, a, a company would have to decide it wants to try to outbid the Chinese government um, when it's easier. By the way, China can just give U.S. Steel a good deal on steel for five, on ore for five or six years. And they'll say, hey, that's great. And then all of a sudden, guess what? You know, you, 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 you know they're held up too. Um, anyway, my point is, I think, I, I wish he would have made, use that kind of example to explain to the American people why, what he means when he says, can we create, you know, prove that democracy can function, um, can make the quick strategic decisions that we need to make to be able to compete. Um, and I, I think a large part of that, obviously, is all the research he talked about. I mean, that's what's really fueled um, our ability to sustain our standard of living and grow the rest of the world's standard of living is American ingenuity. And, and, uh, uh, and he, I do think he made that case very well. Well, it seemed like a very optimistic speech at times. I, I, I know he talked about the threats to democracy, et cetera, but I mean, there was some really transformational stuff in there. One, I, I optimistic. I mean, he got to be when he's, uh, are, you know, challenging Republicans to work across the aisle. You got to be pretty, pretty optimistic to keep to keep trying to do that uh, if you're Joe Biden. But it's who he is. It's in his DNA. Um, and then, you, you know, you, you did have, though, look, it was the rest of us could take our cues from Joe Biden. He was speaking. He didn't know loud. He wasn't it wasn't one of these big, you know, booming speeches, railing, you know, to 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 the audience. It was it was a fireside chat, calm, lowering the temperature, you know, reaching out repeatedly in the speech to across the aisle. I think, you know, not confrontational at all, even when we disagreed. I think that's that's where the country and a lot of the people who have not voted for Democrats are ready if Democrats are willing to speak to them that way. I mean, I think not that we, you know, um, don't walk away from a fight. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, he he is making look, this is a guy. David Gergen said uh, that only twice before in history has an American president done what Joe Biden did in the speech issue a clarion call for transformation of the nation's social safety net. Well, he did that in a way that wasn't confrontational, that was in fireside chat form, that did try to reach out and, 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 and show the American people, at least, that he was trying to reach across the aisle and challenge Republicans to work across the aisle with him. Um, I think that was very effective, and I think a lot of Democrats could learn that 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 tone it doesn't mean that you're not being bold it doesn't mean that you're not being transformational to speak in a, in a lower temperature and to invite the other side to work with you even when you don't believe they will and i think and if they don't i think that's going to hurt the republicans um because of biden's tone because he wasn't swinging at them there are going to be people out there when the Republicans don't come along on these infrastructure bills or any of these other things 
that are going to say, well, look, I saw him reach out to them. I saw him. I, he wasn't yelling at them. By the way, he wasn't senile either, which is, you know, another uh, a bunch of bull that they keep trying to sell. I mean, this guy, you know, that was that, that speech was pretty damn good, pretty long. Uh, and like a lot of uh, other presidents, there may have been a stumble here or there. But you have to be out to lunch if you think that Joe Biden isn't all there. I mean, just just his ability to carry that thing off and say what he did and do it the way he did was pretty, pretty. It just should erase anybody's, you know, pipe dream uh, that you're going to sell that to the American people. The one thing, Joe, that I think he he wasn't afraid to challenge things like I think that line about trickle down economics was really good. Yeah, no, that that sort of makes my point. He challenged people. You know, he had the bold. This uh, uh, of, you know, calling for the biggest transformation of the nation's social safety net, uh, only to two other presidents. But also he, he look, he took Reaganism right on uh, with that, you know, saying that trickle down economics has never worked and that it's time to build from the bottom and middle out and up. And I think, you know, that was again, though, it wasn't it was done in, in a tone and a way that people will, would would give that a listen. And that's where I think he's doing. I think he's slowly plowing the ground um, to sprout uh, 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 Americans out there who want to come together to, to join his cause uh, that, that are not with him yet. But I think, uh, but you already see, you know, I mean, look at the approval ratings. I know people talk about, well, it's only 53% approval. Uh, that's not where, you know, Obama or George Bush or some of the, those, you know, presidents of the past. Yeah, well, they, they weren't coming in right after uh, Donald Trump polarized the country and, and, you know, and broke us in half. So over 50 is good. And I think he's building on it, particularly if you look at uh, response to his handling of COVID and the economy right. turning around. Well, yeah, the last thing I'll say on the... Uh, the speech was it, it was I, a blue collar speech too. I yeah. mean, I, I mean, I think that's the point you're trying to make. That you know, this was a speech that was definitely something. If you're blue collar, there was plenty in this speech. Um, the you know, and again, that tri- they know trickle down economics has never worked for them. Uh, and he, he's he's the guy that's going to build it from the bottom and middle up and out. You know, what I mean, so I think that that was a good point. Well, the the only other thing on the speech, and then we'll move on, is I think the Republican response was pretty striking. Um, it it kind of seemed like, and obviously Tim Scott, thought by many to be a rising star, obvious choice for a response. He was kind of reaching about like how he was trying to criticize it, and I think the fact that those blows didn't really land kind of shows where where Biden's speech was positioned. Well, you can't look. So you just came from the most divisive president in the history of the, of the country, um, and you go up uh, in your response to the speech after a guy spent all that time saying, "Let's work together. Let's come as one. We got to prove that democracy can work uh, against autocracy and compete. To you know, by joining each other and competing and coming to common ground and." And um, and then calling you out, calling Tim Scott out as somebody who he, he hoped to work with on on uh, right. uh, on things. 
And you get up there and, and, and basically say, gee, Joe Biden's just dividing the American people. I mean, <laughs> the, yeah. the, the, the contrast between Trump and Biden make that a lie. Right. The second it comes out of your mouth, Senator Scott. So, I mean, I just think um, that's their problem now. And uh, and again, I think later on when they don't agree and he, he uh, gets uh, enough votes to pass uh, some of this without the Republicans, like he had to do on the on the uh, rescue package, uh, that people will get that it's the Republicans who aren't joining and coming together. And I think that's also why I think the argument about China is really important, because I, I think a lot of uh, Republicans are concerned about uh, about China and our ability to compete uh, moving forward. And it's their own party leadership by not coming together, not cooperating, not working. That's uh, it, slowing down the process of democracy. I mean, you know, the Republican Party has been, and Mitch McConnell have been the party of no uh, for a while, and we got to find yes together. Um, and I think uh, Joe Biden's exposing that. Joe, we'll see how all of what Biden talked about plays politically. But one thing that will affect his agenda, obviously, in the election coming up is another big thing for 22 happened this week. The Census Department released its report on which states are gaining or losing seats in Congress and also electoral votes. Uh, it, it's really kind of the starting gun or the first really big step in kind of figuring out what the battlefield for next year and 2024 is. Joe, what stood out to you from the census results? What's your read on how things are? Uh, look, I thought it was good news, man. I, I mean, I was relieved. You know, overall, there was a shift from blue states and districts uh, to to red states uh, where that would get new dis- districts, but it wasn't nearly as bad as as everybody thought. I mean, before this report, uh, the Cook report and other independent analysis expected, I did too, expected that. The Republicans would gain uh, the ability to draw ten completely new, you know, ruby red seats. Yeah, which would just be devastating, given that we're going in. We've got four or five seat advantage. If you start off twenty twenty two with ten new Republican seats that are safe, you know, you're literally starting off with a deficit of five. But instead, it looks like now in uh, David Wasserman at, at Cook uh, did a projection based on this new report, uh, and he's he's saying that, re- that projecting that Republicans will gain, you know, roughly three point five seats uh, What's a due to redistricting. Seat? I never understood that. Well, I mean, uh, uh, that that says to me that one of the seats that they're going to gain, uh, like the uh, uh, for instance, I think that uh, you've got New York lost a seat to Minnesota. And we'll get into that, why that happened in a minute. But maybe that seat in Minnesota, it's not quite necessarily going to be, you know, a safe Republican seat. It'd be on the bubble and lean Republican, uh, but it won't be. Uh, so that's how you get to, you know, basically there's a gain of four seats, but one of them's not going to be as solid. A, a, right. as solid. Um, I mean, it could be one. But but the fact is, look, that's b- big because instead of, uh, uh, you know, you know, them just being able to draw 10 safe seats, it's only 3.5, let's call it four. We've only got the majority in the House by five right now. So we're going to start, hopefully, around dead even, which just, again, 
goes to why, at least on our show, uh, over and over, I've been screaming, hey, hey, folks, do not relax. Do not let up. 2022 is going to really, um, the, the House majority uh, is going to be really on the ledge for us. And, uh, and particularly when you add in that a president uh, generally loses seats, his party loses seats in, the, in his next midterm after he's elected. The only president, and we harp on this too, that didn't have that happen to him was George W. Bush after 9-11, and he only gained two seats. So the, the reality is, this is a very good report, even as bad as it is. But, you know, there's something else that happened here that I just got, that just tells you how important, you know, elections have consequences. Everything has consequences. New York lost a seat to Minnesota because it didn't, it, it needed 89 more people to fill out their census forms and New York would not have lost that seat. Now, to be clear, Minnesota didn't gain a seat, but if New York hadn't filled out 89 more or had filled out 89 more, then Minnesota would have lost the seat instead of New York. Yeah. It's, I'm sorry. Yes. That, that's my, my point. So, uh, I mean, the, it, it's neither here nor there where the seat goes. <laughs> it's not in New York anymore, folks. And the reason was 89 people didn't fill out their forms. Any state losing a seat, a congressional seat, it's a representative in the House of Representatives, losing that representation because 89 people didn't fill out their forms just shows you it's not just about registering people and making sure that they vote. This is every you know, participation, getting people involved, keeping them engaged really matters. Um, and uh, and what's ha- what happened in New York and the way it lost the seat by 89 uh, folks is uh, just, just another example of that. So, Joe, any anything else st- stand out to you on redistricting? I mean, who who what kind of people should be if I'm a congressman? Should I be worried about losing my seat or getting drawn into another one? Well, you know, Cook has a really good map uh, with what incumbents are at, at the most risks right now, and you know, it, it, it's it, it, every member, regardless of party, in a in a close district uh, has to be you know pretty nervous. I think uh, Stefanik up in New York, uh, for example, ha- has to be worried uh, with what district, uh, what the district might look like. But um, you know, it's hard to say at this early stage. Uh, I think you can just only, right now all you can look at is what this you know how many seats is, you know California is going to lose seat seat Illinois, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, West. West Virginia. I mean, that's the first time California lost a seat since it became a state because it's, it's population growth has always been, um, you know, stronger than the rest of the, the, the country or, or most other states. But then, you know, when those people left, I mean, if people are leaving California and New York, uh, for example, you seizing those two, you can't assume that the people in, who did that and moved to Texas or some of these other states that are going to gain seats, you can't assume, oh, hey, that's great. All those liberals from California have moved to, to Texas. Uh, no, it could be uh, uh, Republicans, conservatives, uh, who are fleeing liberal California 
uh, and I'm saying that, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and moving. Um, so that inflow might actually be, be better for Republicans uh, in Texas, for example. I think it's more important about where did they move to? I mean, uh, you know, people in California who moved to Austin, I might be, and I think that'd be a, you know, or uh, it might be different than uh, people who, who, you know, moved to uh, Huntsville, Alabama, for example, right? Uh, you know, so, so I just think it's too early to know uh, what this, what it all means, except when you look at which states lo- are losing seats and which states are gaining them, you end up knowing that Republicans are, are looking better uh, than the last one, uh, you know, 10 years ago. These seats, by the way, once they're done, will be in power for 10 years. I mean, they'll be in place for 10 years, this map. So uh, there's still a lot of map drawing to do too. There'll be fights there. But right now, the good news is, hey, everybody, they only, it's not 10, it's like three or four seats. Um, still puts us in the hole. That's why we have to fight, let not let up, um, but pay real attention um, to these maps as they start coming out. So, Joe, we can't we can't end an episode without checking in on what seems like our, our weekly check in on the state of the, the GOP right now. Uh, the bigger news this week was uh, Liz Cheney is floating her name for a potential run for the presidential nomination in 2024. Uh, somewhat surprising, given that uh, she was really one of the people standing up to Trump and, and the coup attempt at times and was one of the first to really legitimize Biden's victory. Joe, is that just kind of a doomed candidacy or can she pull the GOP back from the brink? Well, look, I mean, uh, uh, I think uh, it's a brilliant move on her part uh, to try. Um, you see sort of cracks in the wall right now a little bit. Uh, you know, NBC News poll uh, just showed that 50% of Republicans say they support the party more than Trump. That's the first time GOP supporters have outnumbered Trump supporters um, since 2019. Yeah, that's a big deal. So you're seeing, I think, you, you know, some, uh, Trump's not going away. Trumpism isn't going away. Even if he doesn't run, he'll, he'll still be endorsing and, and that's going to matter particularly in 2022, you know, in these Senate uh, primaries that they're going to have. But he's slipping. His grasp is slipping. And the real thing here is I think that if she, how did she, that she could win the primary, though, because, the, and I've said this in the past, that there's somebody could step up. You're going to have so many Trumpies and Trumpist candidates, you know, Holly, Cruz, et cetera, in this race, all trying to out Trump each other, that if you know, I, I said this a few episodes ago, that somebody actually was had the courage to step out there and say, "Hell no, uh, you know, I'm going to uh, uh, not be purged from the party. I'm going to fight for it uh, and 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 lead the party to be the party I know it can be." And that that's Liz Cheney. That's her. You can win some of those early states with 2020, like Trump did. You know, uh, uh, you know, low double digit win, um, and then gain steam as as other people are dropping out, and you're being seen as the winner. And literally the opposite way that Trump vanquished right. the 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 uh, uh, people in his party, you know, the status quo and the establishment in his party, the Jeb Bushes of the world. It could happen in backwards, in reverse. And so, look, I think you know, remember when you know here you had the 
you know, Wyoming GOP censuring her. Right. She she gets a fist bump from Biden uh, at the State of the Union last night. And I think she was clashing with Kevin McCarthy, some of the rumors yeah. at the donors donor meetings. And yeah. Yeah. And she comes, look, you know, uh, you know, uh, as, you know, guy who managed the Dean campaign, her dad was like, uh, you know, Dick Cheney was like, you know, to me, you know, the, the devil incarnate. So I'm not like, it's not like, oh yeah, you know, the, the Cheney's. But look, that means she's got a lot of ability, I think, in the Bush Cheney wing of the party to raise the money that she's going to need. I mean, that, that that network, like it or not. Right, they'll show up for I her. think will show up for her. So could she, could she be the person that Republicans who want to see the party survive, not as a Trump cult, uh, but as a, as a competitive uh, party long-term, could they rally to her? I think it's worth, I, I think she's, yeah, I, I think it was, a, it's a brilliant idea if she uh, has the guts to do it. And, and, and I think she has the wherewithal given the network she comes out of uh, and her, her, how she's handled the, the, all the insurrection um, to, to, to pull the party from the abyss. Yeah. Uh, it, it could be someone like her. So, uh, well, and it's not like she, she, it's not like she's a progressive or even a moderate Republican. Her crime for in the eyes of a lot of these Republicans is standing up to Trump. But remember, she is a very conservative Republican. Yeah, that's my point about yeah. who, you know, to, to, you know, I mean, uh, there are plenty of Republicans who I'd probably, uh, uh, you know, on a ideological scale, rather see try to pull this off, you know, whether it's a Mitt Romney or, you, you know, uh, uh, the, you know, somebody out of the McCain kind of wing of the party, but I don't think that, that that person would have a shot. I think it's almost exactly uh, who Liz Cheney is and, and and who she's connected to within the party that gives her some credibility with some of the, on the conserve, on the true, you know, almost extreme conservative side of the party, but she appears to be the moderate to the moderate Republicans. I mean, in the race, she will. So I think she she might be able to bridge them into the future if she decides to go. Um, and look, I welcome that. I think Biden would welcome that. I mean, I think he means it when he thinks, when he says we need two competitive parties in this country. We desperately do. Well, I guess, uh, Alex, we're out of time. So everybody will be back next Friday at our usual time. And as usual, if you have a race you want us to spotlight or a question, please submit it on iTunes in the reviews or email us at thattrippyshow at gmail.com. See you next Friday. And please, uh, if you're enjoying this show, uh, we'd really appreciate it if you pass it on to others and um, tell folks about us. We're, we're growing every week, and it's great to have uh, the response we're getting and to have you listening. Thank you. I am Anthony Scaramucci, and you may know me from my career on Wall Street or my 11 days in the White House. They say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but I'll tell you, if you read books, you can. I love to read, and my new podcast, Open Book, is about just that. 
Each book is this curated source of knowledge, which we can buy for $10 and digest in 10 hours. Together with some of the brightest minds and authors out there, I'll turn the pages on everything from history and psychology to finance and tech. You can find Open Book with Anthony Scaramucci on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.